KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The latest on police oversight in San Diego. It's undoubtedly true as well that um, police officers have an abundance of power. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How crisis response teams are providing a mental health intervention. They do a complete assessment to determine what is the best level of service that the individual needs in the community. A look at the challenges nonprofits face in Chula Vista and why there's controversy around SDSU's Kumyai land acknowledgement. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Yesterday, the San Diego City Council grew closer to establishing a new commission to oversee police misconduct, though additional steps remain in the process. Here's San Diego City Council President Sean Elo Rivera from Monday's meeting. It's undoubtedly true as well that um, police officers have an abundance of power and um, accountability when that power is not utilized correctly is super important for making sure that we live up to our ideals as a country, as a city, and just as a society. In the 2020 election, Measure B passed by a wide margin to establish a commission on police practices, but the actual creation of it has proved more difficult. The ordinance now moves to a review by the police union and is then expected to return to the council for a final vote. Here to tell us more is San Diego investigative journalist Kelly Davis. Kelly, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So what did the city council vote on yesterday? Yeah, so so yesterday the city council uh, got a new draft of the ordinance that will guide the implementation, will kind of serve as the the foundation, the backbone for this new commission on police practices. And so they voted to approve the language in that ordinance. And as you said, it will now um, move on to a, a process called meet and confer, where the city's police union will will get a chance to review the ordinance and and discuss um, its provisions with the city uh, labor negotiators. You write about changes requested by community leaders. What are those changes? So they've really been combing through the language of the ordinance, looking at every word in it, and looking for places where they feel the language could be more precise and less open to interpretation. There, There is a long history in San Diego of police unions suing 
to kind of undermine uh, citizen uh, oversight entities. And so they want to make sure everything is as precise as possible. And, you know, Brandon Hilpert, he's a chair of the Interim Commission on Police Practices. He spoke at yesterday's meeting and he said that this ordinance should be detailed and unambiguous. So like I said, they really are looking for clarity in, in every every single word in the ordinance. In your article, you quote Andrea St. Julian of San Diegans for Justice, who authored Measure B. You say she described yesterday's council meeting as Orwellian. Uh, what led her to make that assessment? Well, she, she felt like the community was just completely ignored. Um, it was a meeting, a virtual meeting, meaning the um, community members didn't attend in person, but they could call in and and uh, during public comment, and there were twenty or so people who spoke during public comment. And uh, Andrea St. Julian, and um, she's uh, like you said, the the co chair of San Diegans for Justice. They had sent in a letter to the city council on February twenty sixth, kind of laying out several items that they felt needed to be amended in the ordinance. And, and none of that was addressed, and they just felt that the like I said that the community was was just completely ignored. And there was discussion on plans to exclude people who have been convicted of a violent crime to be able to serve on the commission. Where did the council end up on that? Well, that that ended up being a win for for the for the community members. So the ordinance went from completely excluding anyone with a felony from ever serving on the commission to now, as long as a person has served their time, completed their sentence and completed probation or parole, they can be considered as uh, becoming a commissioner. And experts say that this is really important for these police oversight boards because to have someone with that that lived experience who, who's been involved in the cr- criminal justice system, to have their voice be part of these commissions is, is really important. And the draft ordinance is set to go to the police union to review. Uh, A major sticking point seems to be around the sharing of documents. What's the issue there? Yeah, so this is this is one of the areas where advocates felt the ordinance is too open to interpretation. Um, currently, the language allows the p- police chief to withhold documents based on his opinion, and that was the actual word that is in the ordinance, ordinance right now, the word opinion. So if in his opinion, releasing documents could compromise an investigation or releasing documents um, could violate state law then he could say, no, you guys can't have these documents. Um, Advocates really took issue with the use of the term opinion and asked the city council to change the wording to say that not releasing documents must be based on a reasonably objective standard. So they felt that that would kind of really tighten up things and and, um, not leave it so open to interpretation. Now, in 2020, Measure B passed by a wide margin, but here we are in 2022 and the commission has still not been created yet. Why has the process taken so long? Well, it's really only been uh, about a year since since Measure B became law. It, it took a little bit of time um, after the election for, for everything to be certified because of COVID. So it's been about a year since since the election results were certified. Um and, and, you know, these things take time. There was a timeline that said this could take until, um, you know, 2022. And there have been things that have held up the process. You know, for instance, the city attorney's office 
spent almost half a year on the first draft of the ordinance, but the community groups found that version totally unacceptable. And they argued that the city attorney, which um, represents the police department in lawsuits and, you know, could be representing the police department in issues that come before the commission, you know, police shootings or misconduct issues. So, so they wanted the city attorney to not have any role in writing the ordinance and the city agreed yes okay we'll, we'll contract with an outside law firm so it took several months to to get that outside law firm in place and then have them take a, a crack at the ordinance so that that has seems to be um the reason the the major reason um for for the delay so what are the next steps with the commission and when might we expect it to be finalized yeah, so now, as I said, the draft will go through the meet and confer process where the city's labor negotiators and police union representatives, they'll discuss any aspects of the ordinance that could impact uh, working conditions for police officers. Um, and then it'll return to the full city council for a vote. And it's not clear when that might be finalized. It could hopefully, you know, be sometime this spring. Mm. I've been speaking with San Diego writer and journalist Kelly Davis. You can find her article on Monday's city council meeting on the police commission at voiceofsandiego.org. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, Jade. It's an idea that's been developing in San Diego for several years, and since December, mobile crisis response teams can answer calls for mental health issues all across the county. The MCRT response does not include police, which is a significant change from the way mental health calls have been answered in the past. A San Diego Union-Tribune report says the no badges, no sirens, and no guns approach to mental health crises is something advocates have been urging for a long time. Too often in the past, they say, a mental health emergency in San Diego has been exacerbated by police intervention, and the person having the crisis has sometimes ended up dead. Joining me is Piedad Garcia, the Assistant Deputy Director for the County's Department of Mental Health and a clinical specialist who helped develop the services of the mobile crisis response teams. And Piedad, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you. Tell us if you can describe what a typical intervention by the mobile crisis response team is like. The mobile crisis response team, also known as the MCR teams, are a team that is composed of multidisciplinary uh, professionals to include licensed mental health clinician, case manager, and a peer specialist, a person with lived experience. So when they get a call from the community through our accident crisis line, they respond on site. And they evaluate the situation by doing a mental health assessment, also assessing for what are the needs of the individual. Maybe they need medication management. Maybe they need assistance with transport to our crisis stabilization unit. So they do a complete uh, assessment to determine what is the best level of service that the individual needs in the community. Often we have seen the community uses uh, emergency departments for 
behavioral health crisis, uh, mental health or substance use crisis. And so the MCRT is able to divert appropriate clients to the crisis stabilization units in the region, in the south and in north as well in the central region. So they respond to the community call based on the emergency that they have and they are experiencing. How does that MCRT response differ from what would have happened in the past? In the past, before our MCR teams, we get calls through the access and crisis line from the community. They screen, evaluate what the need is, and they determine if there is a need for law enforcement to deploy the psychiatric emergency response team known as PERT. So that's what has been happening in, in the past when there is an emergency. Now, the Access and Crisis Line, which is our 24-7 calling center with multiple languages, is able to access the MCR teams to respond to a community where law enforcement is not necessary based on a screening criteria. If it is a safety issue where there may be weapons or a high potential for violence, the MCRT would not be requested to respond to this community call and rather law enforcement and our PERT would be the most appropriate first responders to respond to the call. How does the dispatcher make the decision whether to deploy MCRT or PERT or law enforcement? If there is an imminent danger, uh, there are weapons involved, there is a high potential for violence, they would then deploy PERT or law enforcement. They will not deploy MCRT. Because it's, the multidisciplinary team is a non-law enforcement team. So it's a clinical team, a care coordination team. And so that is how the dispatcher at the ACL, Access and Crisis Line, based on a criteria, is able to deploy any of these programs. Fire, EMS, law enforcement, PERT, or MCR team. Now, what prompted the county to move in this direction, to send unarmed response teams to address mental health calls? You know, for the past year, we have been working with all law enforcement jurisdiction in San Diego County. And we know that the data that they have shared with us is that about 40 to 50 percent of the calls that law enforcement responds or PERT responds really does not necessitate an armed officer. And so based on that data, that was one of the major decision points. The other is that we know nationally and locally we are developing alternatives to law enforcement response when appropriate and when indicated for persons with serious mental illness or addiction. And that approach and the model is more in line with mental health or substance use issues rather than sending a law enforcement that is armed. And see that the data and the outcomes and the connection to services of these clients, they're better served by a clinical team. And how many mobile crisis response teams are there? Telecare Corporation in the five regions of San Diego County has approximately 13 teams. And Exodus in North Coastal Region uh, has approximately five teams uh, in any given day. So that's add that up, it's about 2018. And the MCRT approach is one aspect of an expansion of county mental health services. Can you give us an idea of the other changes being made? Absolutely. Um, 
the other major uh, development in the last couple of years has been the development and the siting of crisis stabilization units. We have cited the Palomar Hospital has on their campus a crisis stabilization unit, Vista CSU, crisis stabilization unit in the city of Vista. We also have Paradise Valley in the south region. So if the individual that they respond to needs immediate medication, they are able to assist with the transport, coordinate the admission with the CSU in those particular regions. So the CSU is a development that we have had in the last couple of years. So it also prevents clients in emergency, behavioral health emergency situations to go into the ED, emergency department, and clogging up that particular level of service. So we also have had, as part of our development, is a harm reduction a team in the city of San Diego that focuses on homeless persons with chronic substance use and that are difficult to engage in, in services. So that's an outreach and engagement uh, team. It is a clinical team as well, clinicians, nurses, case managers, peer specialists to respond to this difficult to engage individuals. And we have complemented that clinical care coordination team with a short-term shelter for these individuals in this particular program that is called SeaHeart. So that's a, a second development that we have added to our repertoire of, of services to address uh, the needs of the communities. And once again, people can reach mobile crisis response teams through the county's 24-hour access and crisis line. That's at 888-724-7240. I've been speaking with Pilar Garcia, the Assistant Deputy Director for the San Diego County Department of Mental Health. And thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Cities need nonprofits to serve their most vulnerable, but in Chula Vista, some nonprofit leaders told KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser that working with the city isn't worth the trouble. I'm going to go grab some blankets because, you know, we got the blankets from, uh, you know, the donations. It's a cool and cloudy morning outside an old warehouse in Chula Vista. Homeless people are waiting to get free showers and meet with case managers. A volunteer with the local nonprofit Community Through Hope walks around passing out warm burritos. I need to get food stamps and general relief. My sister tried to help me. Since starting in 2018, the founders of the fledgling nonprofit felt they could meet the challenge of providing basic services to Chula Vista's homeless population. They had no idea their most difficult struggle would be with city officials. After months of back and forth, we were told that we were not going to be able to use the building and we were left without a facility. Rosie Vasquez is the CEO. She says she was excited when the city promised she could sublease space from the local YMCA. 
but after months of frustrating communication, she was told she couldn't use the YMCA space after all. So myself and some volunteers went out and we were able to find the building that we're in now um, and paying a substantial amount of rent. She was finally able to open her doors almost a year later, but her issues with the city of Chula Vista were just beginning. Over the next three years, she dealt with late payments, poor communication, and the feeling that the city didn't value her services. Last year, the city opted not to renew its contract with Community Through Hope. Vasquez vowed never to do business with Chula Vista again. You're of value when they need you, and if you aren't going to do what they say, you are no longer of value. There is no thought around the work that's being done by this organization and who is really going to suffer if that organization is not up and running. And in our case, it's literally community members on the street who rely on us every day to access nutrition, to access services. This is a problem that goes beyond just one nonprofit. It's a problem for the entire community. That's according to Laura Dietrich, the associate director of the Nonprofit Institute at the University of San Diego. Especially um, in, in COVID. I mean, if you want to really look at how much government had to rely on nonprofits to reach populations um, to deliver all kinds of services, the nonprofit sector really stepped up. Yet Community Through Hope is one of several nonprofits that feel they were knocked back by the city when they stepped up. Chula Vista officials refused to be interviewed for this story. Instead, a spokeswoman sent written statements referencing some, but not all, of the issues raised by the nonprofit leaders. And the Lucky Duck Foundation and Peter for making this happen, um, for providing this much-needed shelter structure to help address the issues of homelessness in Chula Vista and South County. In May 2020, during the depths of the COVID crisis, Chula Vista Mayor Mary Salas made a big announcement. The city would set up a large tent to house hundreds of people experiencing homelessness. The tent came from the local Lucky Duck Foundation. City officials promised it would be up by December 2020. But a year later, the tent wasn't set up, says Lucky Duck Executive Director Drew Moser. They ultimately said, actually, we've, we've changed our mind. We no longer want to use this asset. And so it's it's unfortunate and frustrating that uh, that that shelter could not be up and operational throughout that time. In response, a city spokeswoman referenced a city council agenda item that said, quote, the Lucky Duck Foundation and the city of Chula Vista mutually agreed that the tent would be better utilized elsewhere with fewer limitations. Moser says that's a lie. His organization was willing to work with the city on its terms for using the tent. It just seemed like every, every time we, we did something, we'd hit a brick wall. Ruben Torres leads the nonprofit Love Thy Neighbor, which provides arts programs to underserved youth. He, too, started with high hopes in his relationship with Chula Vista. But those hopes soon faded. For example, he says city staff told him he could set up a coffee cart business at local libraries as part of a job training program. He went out and bought coffee cart equipment. But then the city went dark on him. Now we're left with the storage full of, you know, um, coffee equipment. You know, we spent thousands on. Um, there's some kind of disconnect or brick wall or something that happens in the uh, internal structure of how things operate at, 
at the city of Chula Vista. In a statement, a city spokeswoman says discussions with Torres were preliminary and no contract was signed. Torres says that's not true. He was told the contract was on the city attorney's desk. He ultimately just gave up. He won't try to work with the city again. You just walk away kind of feeling like, well, should I even attempt to do anything else? And if we're approached to do anything else, I even try. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. San Diego leaders have often praised our cross-border partnership with Baja California as a dynamic cultural and economic powerhouse unlike anywhere else. A new report seems to support that claim. The Aller Center at the University of San Diego examined the economic impact of the border region it calls Cali Baja and found it creates jobs, stimulates educational achievement, and even help San Diego and Tijuana weather the pandemic. Joining me is David Shirk, Department Chair and USD Professor of Political Science and International Relations, who helped prepare the report. And David, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Now, we hear a lot about the cross-border economy. What does this report document about its economic impact? So this report looks at what we call the Cali Baja region. So we're really looking at uh, the two California counties that are adjacent to the U.S.-Mexico border and the uh, various municipalities that make up uh, the state of Baja California. So Tijuana, Rosarito, um, Mexicali, uh, Ensenada, and uh, Tecate. And uh, the, the idea of this study kind of builds on some earlier work that, that really tries to see what are our areas of comparative advantage? What are the areas of strength that we have in this region as measured by the concentration of employment in certain industries and um, some other economic indicators? And in addition, the regional gross domestic product is almost $250 billion. Now, what types of industries really fuel the cross-border economic engine? So it's not about what the largest industries are in the region, but rather what industries essentially punch above their weight compared to other parts of the country. Uh, And in this case, since we're looking at both the United States and Mexico, uh, sort of the larger uh, binational uh, economies. And what we found is that there are some industries that have 10 or 20 times the concentration of employment in San Diego, Cali Baja, Imperial, uh, in in basically the larger Cali Baja region. And, and, And especially, Uh, We're talking about industries like medical equipment and supply manufacturing, uh, audiovisual manufacturing. These are industries where you have a very significant concentration of productive capability that is located in our region that makes it unique compared to other parts of, of the United States and Mexico. The study documents the number of college and university degrees awarded in San Diego and Baja. What does that have to do directly with the cross-border economy? Well, we have to be thinking about what we're doing in terms of workforce preparation to feed those industries and support those industries where we have a competitive advantage. And so what's noticeable in both on the U.S. side and on the Mexican side is really a strong concentration in STEM uh, or you know, science, technology, uh, engineering and math degrees that are offered in our region by our major universities on this side of the border and on the Mexican side of the border, where you're seeing in any given year, you know, five, 6,000 
uh, degrees offered in science and math, for example, uh, on the U.S. side, and roughly an equivalent number looking at um, engineering and, and other science degrees on the Mexican side of the border, closer to four or 5,000 degrees a year. And so when we invest in the human capital of the region, it helps feed these knowledge intensive industries and makes us more competitive in the global economy. The report also urges equity when it comes to STEM education in low-income communities on both sides of the border. Why is that in the report? Well, it's so important to recognize that, unfortunately, in marginalized communities and in, in underrepresented communities, those opportunities for uh, STEM enrichment and, and STEM education that we see elsewhere in the region um, do not exist or are weak. And so it's really important to develop, especially some of the um, the, the extramural programs and sort of bridge programs that help students that are in underserved communities uh, catch up and, and excel in STEM areas. How did this regional economy help during the worst of the pandemic? You know, one of the really interesting things about this report is that we've identified literally dozens of industries in which we have a comparative advantage in the Cali Baja region. And the predominant theme across the board in these industries is manufacturing. And when you think of the U.S. economy today, uh, or even the San Diego economy, you don't necessarily think of manufacturing. We're a service-based uh, economy. But because of our geopolitical location on the border, because of our proximity to Baja California, we have advantages in manufacturing capability that are really unique for a U.S. city. And so as a binational region, our ability to engage in production of actual things is, is really superior to some other parts of the United States. And that's something that's going to be particularly important as we think about this new supply chain uh, challenged environment that we live in at this particular moment, right? During the pandemic, the, we saw certain industries in the region, uh, tourism and other service industries really struggle, but it was our manufacturing industries that maintained the highest levels of employment. And, and I think that has lessons for us as we think about uh, the, our, our industrial policy, our economic policies, looking at the region over the next decade or so. Now, during the last administration and during the pandemic, delegations of Cali Baja leaders had to go to Washington to ask that the border not be shut down. Is the economic importance of this region still not understood back east? I think it is very difficult for people inside the Beltway or inside Mexico City's Periferico to really understand um, just how intertwined our border communities are economically and how much production sharing really goes on on the ground at the U.S.-Mexico border. And we're really, I mean, this is the most populous, most industrially uh, advanced portion of the border. The, the Cali Baja region is really kind of the capital of the border region. And it, it's super important for us to be able to communicate what are our regional interests. And that's why the work of uh, the San Diego and Tijuana Chambers of Commerce and other uh, organizations that are advocating in a binational way and lobbying in a binational way is so important. Now, since we have this economic engine humming away between our two regions, are we really making the most of it? What could we do to improve that flow? 
Well, definitely. I mean, we're always in need of improving our cross-border infrastructure. You still have people waiting literally hours in order to engage in economic activity on either side of the border. And that is a hindrance that really slows down and reduces the uh, amount of of commerce and the amount of economic activity and, and cooperation and collaboration that we can do in the region. So I do think that in enhancing our border infrastructure, making it easier for the the legitimate flows of commerce that that happen, the the tens of thousands uh, of of people who cross the border every day, to do that easier would certainly enhance our regional economy. Now, I've been speaking with David Shirk, department chair and USD professor of political science and international relations. He helped prepare this report. And David, thank you. Thanks so much for having Maureen. Previously, we brought you a story on how delays for state hearings on wage theft cases are hurting low-wage workers hoping to recover the money they're owed. Now, new data obtained by KQED shows how much those wait times have ballooned in recent years. KQED's Farida Javala romero reports workers with claims in Oakland and San Francisco face some of the worst delays in California. Mirna Arana sits at a park near her house in Oakland and unfolds documents from the California Labor Commissioner's office on her claim for thousands of dollars in unpaid wages. She says she worked 12-hour days, six days a week, cleaning offices and homes for a small janitorial company. But her employer only paid her for half that and didn't pay overtime and meal and rest breaks, as required by law. She plucked up the courage to complain to the state in 2018, but it took more than three years before the labor commissioner held a hearing. It's hard to wait that long, she says. It meant that her family had to move three times when the rent went up, and they struggled to buy food. Employers can settle with workers at any time, but by law, The Labor Commissioner's office must hold a hearing for an unresolved wage claim within 120 days from when it's filed. That's not happening. In 2015, California workers waited almost twice as long for a hearing. Now, they're waiting close to seven times as long, 812 days on average, according to figures we obtained from the Labor Commissioner. I want to acknowledge that that is not a number that we want to be at. Daniel Yu is an assistant chief at the agency. We want to make sure that the process works effectively and efficiently so the workers are able to get their hearings resolved as quickly as possible. He says when the pandemic started, the agency halted in-person hearings for a year and a half, which slowed things significantly. And there are only about 64 hearing officer positions statewide to judge thousands of wage claims per year. Twelve of those positions are vacant, says you. The hiring of our hearing officers uh, remains a top priority. He says the agency will get funding to hire four more hearing officers this summer. But that's not enough staff to cut the wait times, says Veronica Chavez, a workers' rights attorney with Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland. Clearly it's not. They do need more. Like a lot. A lot more. Just the Oakland and San Francisco offices need need many hearing officers. 
Even before the pandemic, those offices faced among the longest delays. And last year in San Francisco, the average wait was 968 days. In Oakland, it was 1160 days, more than three years. This almost encourages employers to continue exploiting. You know, the chances of there being repercussions seem to be very long, far down the line. One of her clients is a restaurant cook named Alexander. We're not using his last name because he fears it'll hurt his case. He was hopeful when he filed his claim back in September 2018. Three and a half years later, he's still waiting for a hearing. He says not knowing if he'll ever get paid has left him hopeless and depressed. Enfadoso, mire tanto esperar como ya cayendo en depresión uno. State Assemblyman Ash Kalra, who chairs the Labor Committee, says he understands workers are frustrated. Delays that go on for years is completely unacceptable, uh, and we have to do better. Kalra says he's ready to push for more resources and support for the Labor Commissioner, including to make the job of hearing officer more attractive, so the agency can compete for candidates who might go to the private sector. And you also have that class classifications, the job classifications pay more. And that's not something that can necessarily be legislated, but it is something the administration should look at. Back at the playground in Oakland, Mirna Arana tells her three-year-old son it's time to go home. She finally got her hearing. And last December, the labor commissioner ruled that her old boss owes her nearly $183,000. But by then, the company had filed for bankruptcy, she says, and it's unclear if she can collect her wages. She says she wants the state to resolve these claims faster to help fight the injustice of wage theft that's hurting her community. That was for Rita Javala Romero with KQED reporting. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A Kumyai land acknowledgement to be included in course syllabi at SDSU is meant to cultivate honor and respect for the Kumyai. But some teachers say they think the statement is political, and they don't want to have to include it in their syllabi. Gary Robbins has been covering this story for the San Diego Union-Tribune. He joins us to explain the controversy. Gary, welcome. Hi, it's good to be with you. 
So first, can you describe SDSU's Kumeyaay Land Acknowledgement and its purpose? Well, the land acknowledgement is a document that uh, universities all over the country have been adopting. It's really simple in most ways. It's meant to be a document that recognizes and respects Native Americans who once occupied the land where universities sit. For so, for example, here in San Diego, the Kumeyaay tribe once inhabited the land on, on which San Diego State University sits, the University of San Diego, um, UC San Diego, all of those. So it's just a formal acknowledgement um, uh, of this. Now, San Diego State takes this a bit further by requiring faculty to include that statement in their course syllabuses. And that's what's caused some controversy. Yeah, so faculty will be required to put this statement in their syllabi so every student sees it. Why are some teachers against this? Well, they think that it's um, the university forcing political ideology on them. You know, the statement uh, offers a, you know, a specific description of the Kumeyaay and their history and why the university should acknowledge, acknowledge them. But um, some of the faculty, and there's a civil rights group called um, uh, FIRE, say, you know, you're telling people, not asking people, to embrace this. And you're asking them to embrace a particular view of history. And the faculty may or may not agree with it. Um, and so that's what caused the, um, the backdraft on this. And as you mentioned, statements like these are not uncommon and have been adopted by many universities. So why is this statement so controversial? And is the timing of this significant? This is different because it is required. The faculty must include this in their syllabi. That was a rule passed by the university senate. Most other universities don't do that. Uh, the university just in some way passes a land acknowledgement. They often include it in a lot of university documents, uh, but they don't go so far as to tell professors to include this in the syllabus. San Diego State has taken it one step further, and that um, is what's causing the issue. Some people feel like they're being fed political ideology by the university, including the civil rights group FIRE, which is the one that came in and said something about this. Now, the odd thing about this is that this um, hasn't been an issue until recently. Uh, the rule was passed more than a year ago in kind of a strange vote. Um, when it was passed by the Senate, the vote was 39 yes, 16 no, 11 abstentions, and 40 of the faculty member there didn't uh, participate at all in the vote. I talked to some faculty about that. They said that they were kind of afraid to do anything or say anything for fear of a political backlash if someone didn't like their own view on this particular issue. It's part of this feeling about cancel culture that is strong, so strong right now. There's this, just this worry that anything you say um, could be misinterpreted, uh, taken out of context, put on social media, and then all of a sudden you're in trouble or canceled. So there's a deep fear at San Diego State about this. And I have sensed this fear at other universities, including at times UC San Diego. You mentioned uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, has gotten involved in this. Who are they and what exactly is their involvement? They're a civil rights group uh, that take up educational um, issues. They're based in Philadelphia, and they get, a, they get involved a lot on things like academic free speech, free speech rights, and things like this, where they think political ideology has been introduced into things like curriculums. Someone at San Diego State and the faculty complained to FIRE about this issue. It appears to be very late last year. And then FIRE jumped in and sent a letter to the university senate and said, hey, this is wrong what you're doing. You're forcing ideology on people. You should change this. But Gary, is this statement a statement of ideology or a statement of historical fact? 
I think that has to be left up to the person reading it. I mean, there is historic fact within this, and there are well-established facts about the Kumeyaay people. It's believed that, you know, they've been in this county for 10,000 to 12,000 years. There's been a lot of archaeological uh, studies. Um, there's a lot known about the Kumeyaay. Um, perhaps what people are resisting is the university saying that you have to do this. You know, we're giving you a very specific um, description and we're saying you got to include that. And people, some people are opposing that and saying, well, that may not be how I particularly view them or their history. Um, I, do get, I do get your meaning here, like isn't history history? And the answer to that would be yes. But I think some people um, are resisting the fact that they're, be, they're being told that they have to add this to a core syllabus. Hmm. What's been the university's response to this? Leadership hasn't wanted to talk about it. We've um, had a real issue with President De La Torre on many issues over the past couple of years. She simply won't talk to us about this or the fraternities or other issues that have arisen. So it's hard to know exactly what their thinking is. We did reach out to um, uh, the University Senate and really didn't get much of a response from them. We did, though, talk to some faculty members, including, uh, including Gordon Shackelford, an emeritus professor of physics who's been at um, uh, State for a very long time. And he said this is um, political ideology and that there are people that are afraid that there will be a backlash if they don't include it. Um, so they don't want to speak up. In your piece, you write about how this land acknowledgement uh, provides a sense of pride for so many students. Can you talk about that? Yes, it is a source of pride for many students. In fact, Lauren Mapp from our staff is at State Today to talk to those students. Um, they've expressed the, the desire that this land acknowledgement be made public and public a lot. And in fact, it is. You know, the entire statement is included at the top of the university Senate agenda on every agenda item. And it's also read aloud or a video played at many formal events for the university. So the university has embraced it. Um, that comes both from the faculty and from President De La Torre. So there's a real strong commitment on that end. The resistance is coming from the requirement. And again, the Senate is expected to make a decision about the Kumyai statement. What might change? Well, it looks like it's going to be made optional instead of required. Uh, one of the Senate documents that came out on this uh, is really strongly leading that way. Uh, I'm told that there's going to be perhaps some strong discussion about it because some people are finally standing up and saying, we don't like what happened. I also received an email this morning saying that there could be a Zoom bombing of the uh, Senate meeting uh, today because there's a lot of um, anger among Senate, uh, Senate members on some way public discourse has been going. Um, some people just don't feel comfortable speaking. And uh, to be frank with you, this has been a, a big issue with the university. I've been speaking with Gary Robbins of the San Diego Union Tribune. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Before we go today, a message from Midday Edition senior producer Megan Burke. Yesterday on our show, we brought you the story of the last case of the enslavement of Black people in California. In the introduction to that story, we use the word imported in reference to people. Words are important. I want to apologize for the use of that word. It was a regrettable mistake. And while we don't want to forget that there was a time when Black people in the U.S. were treated as less than human, 
On Midday Edition, we celebrate the lives and culture of Black people everywhere. Thank you for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.